And I think we definitely owe Joel um, a big thank you for coming and... We owe him a big thank you for coming and helping us out a little bit. Uh, we also owe a big thank you to City of God because they're without Joel today. So thanks again to Eric and all the people up in West Lafayette as they are uh, just helping us out with lending us Joel. So now I'll be the first to remind you, if you didn't know this yet, especially if you're a man, Valentine's Day is this coming week. Valentine's Day is on Friday. And being that Valentine's Day is on a Friday, if you're planning on taking somebody out to dinner, you probably need to go ahead and make reservations because restaurants are going to be absolutely packed with Valentine's Day being on a Friday. But then again, you don't have to take someone out to dinner to show them that you love them. You could do something at home. You could do a home-cooked romantic meal. Now, for me, that would be shells and cheese and a tombstone pizza, which I think is very romantic, but, you know, that's just me. You could just buy a piece of jewelry and throw money at the problem and get rid of it that way. That usually tends to work. Just buy something expensive, give it to them, and then you're done. You are absolved of Valentine's Day responsibilities from that point forward. Or you could do something completely over the top like you see on YouTube videos. You could do a flash mob proposal. That's a big thing these days on YouTube. Or you could rent a plane that tows a banner that proclaims your love for the person that you're with. But, you know, Valentine's Day really isn't about restaurants. It's not about jewelry. It's not about flash mobs or over-the-top proposals, that type of stuff. If you're an optimist, Valentine's Day is about genuine, heartfelt love. Now, if you're a pessimist, you could say, no, Valentine's Day is about selling cards and stuffed animals. Well, be an optimist here for a while. Let's assume that Valentine's Day is about genuine, authentic, meaningful love. You know... Valentine's Day is an opportunity, not just for people that you're in a romantic relationship with, but it's an opportunity for your parents or for your siblings or for your children or for your friends to know how much you care about them. It's an opportunity for you to show them how much they mean to you and how much you really appreciate them. And you know, this week, but really any week and any other time in history, love is a big topic of conversation. Because whether we realize it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, Love matters to each and every one of us. You know, somewhere right now, maybe even in this room, a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they're wondering if their spouse or their significant other loves them the way they used to. Somewhere else, there's a couple that is fighting because one of the people betrayed their relationship and betrayed their love by having an affair, wondering if that love has been completely gone. There's another couple somewhere that is telling each other, I love you for the first time. And they're in this romantic bliss. And then there's some people who are sitting there and they can't seem to understand why they can't find love at all. No matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they look, they can't find it and it frustrates them and it leaves them disappointed every year. Love matters to every single one of us in some shape, form, or fashion, regardless of whether or not you fall into any of those categories that I just explained. And you know, in a world where these things I mentioned are so common, where people are dealing with these questions and dealing with these struggles, it's important that we know what God has to say on the subject. You know, we live in a world where there is so much confusion about what love really is or where we can even find it, it's important to see what God has to say. That's what we're going to do today as we pick up in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. Last week we were in chapters 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, talking about 
how God expects his children to imitate him. How when God adopts you as a son or as a daughter, he expects you to strive to be like him. The same way Peyton Manning strives to be like Archie Manning. We talked about that comparison last week. But today we're going to take this one step farther. And we're going to see that imitating our father, imitating God, the thing that God's daughters and sons are called to do requires love. Because we're going to see that the same love that Jesus has for you and for me is the kind of love that Jesus expects us to show to one another, to show to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So like I said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. We're going to pick up there. But before we actually dig into our text, I'm going to start us out with a word of prayer. So if you would, pray with me. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with individually, all that you've blessed us with as a church. God, as this week comes up, as Valentine's Day comes up, some of us may love it, some of us may hate it, some of us may think it's a joke, but love matters to every single one of us. And we all long to love, we all long to be loved. That's just part of being human. And so, God, I pray that as we study what First John has to say about this idea of loving one another, that we'll be challenged, we'll be convicted, we'll be encouraged, and that we'll always be reminded of the incredible love that you show for us, and the privilege that we have to show that love for other people. God, we love you, we honor you, we praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to 1 John 3, 11. If you don't have one with you, feel free to use one in the chair underneath you. If you don't own one, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. So 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, if you've been here for the rest of this series, this Because He First Loved Us series through 1 John, there's a couple things that you may be reminded of in this passage. And one of them is that phrase, the message which you've heard from the beginning. John has said that a couple different times now, the message you've heard from the beginning, the message you've heard from the beginning. And it makes sense that he's saying it because he's dealing with false teachers who are trying to lead some of his people astray. And some of his people may have already been led astray. And so John is reminding the people, don't forget what I taught you. Don't forget what you learned. Don't forget what you knew when you first came to know Christ. Don't forget the solid doctrine, the sound teaching of who Jesus really is. The fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man and he died on the cross for you to atone for your sins. Don't forget this stuff. But nevertheless, some people do forget it. But John reiterates, you shouldn't. It's the message you heard from the beginning. But then on top of that, this isn't just some message that John pulled out of thin air. This isn't just something that he came up with or the other apostles came up with. This is straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. This idea of loving one another. Look at John chapter 13, verse 34. We read in that passage, Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. From the very beginning, Jesus stressed this idea, love one another. Before he was arrested, before he was crucified, before he was resurrected, before he ascended to be with God, he's hitting on this teaching, love one another. And in fact, in this passage, he even goes so far as to say that your love for one another, the way you treat one another, that's going to be the biggest identifier of who my disciples are. You know, Jesus could have honed in on a lot of things here. He could have honed in on solid doctrine. He could have honed in on righteous living. He could have honed in on spiritual disciplines. But he said one thing, and that's this, love one another. The other things, oh yeah, they're important. They absolutely matter. But this is the one thing that Jesus primarily leaves his disciples with. Love one another. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. Now, John takes this idea and he elaborates it and he reemphasizes it. And he takes it potentially even farther than what Jesus said in John 13. He says that this love that Jesus has for us, for his people, for God's sons and daughters, this love runs completely contrary to what we see in the world. And the reason for that is that hatred characterizes the world. That's the idea that John is getting at here. Hatred characterizes the world. You know, he talks about these extremes throughout this book. He uses these extremes of love and hatred, light and darkness, life and death. John's a pretty black and white guy. And he says that if you claim to love one another, you can't hate one another. Sounds like a pretty simple formula, doesn't it? Well, hatred characterizes the world. And John is telling his followers, don't let it characterize you. Don't let hatred characterize you if you're my disciple. And then he goes into this example of Cain and Abel. Now, if you've been in the church for long, you've probably heard the story of Cain and Abel. It occurs in Genesis chapter 4, right after sin enters into the world. Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's sons. So Cain and Abel are born. Cain's more of a farming type. Abel's a little bit more of a hunting type. But both Cain and Abel decide that they're going to present a sacrifice to God. They're going to bring a first fruits offering to God. So Cain and Abel both get their sacrifices. They gather their stuff together. They bring it before God. But God chooses Abel's over Cain's. Now, this leaves Cain upset. This leaves Cain angry. He's offended. He's embarrassed that God rejected his sacrifice and chose Abel's instead. Now, of course, the question would be asked, well, what was so bad about Cain's sacrifice? Why would God reject it? Why couldn't God just accept both sacrifices? Was God just not in the mood for fruit and vegetables that day, or was there something else going on? Well, the issue is not so much in the sacrifice itself. The issue seems to be more in the person who's offering the sacrifice. There's something about Cain's heart. There's something about Cain's attitude. There's something about Cain's motivation with the sacrifice that just doesn't really seem to sit well with God. So his sacrifice is rejected. Again, Cain's upset. He's angry. But he decides that he's going to get even. And he decides that he's going to kill Abel. That he can't let Abel get away with this. Now, why would he kill Abel? 
Abel didn't do anything wrong. It's not like Abel sabotaged Cain's sacrifice. That's not the issue at all. Abel was just going on about his business, doing what he needed to do. And God just happened to choose his sacrifice over Cain's. You can't blame Abel for that. Well, Cain blamed Abel for that, even though Abel was innocent. And you know, when it comes to that question of why Cain killed Abel, the common answer we hear is, well, Cain was jealous. And that's certainly a part of it. There was some jealousy there. But John seems to indicate that there may be even more to it than that. It's not just that Cain is jealous. It's that Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain hated Abel. This hatred that Cain had for him just built up. He was angry. He was jealous. He was bitter. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed. And so he has to get even. But maybe more than anything, he sees Abel's righteousness, according to John, and it seems to just frustrate him. And that hatred just bubbles up over and over and over until he can't even stand looking at Abel anymore. He hopes Abel would just be gone, and he takes it into his own hands. You know, we hear that, and we think, well, Abel was righteous and Cain was evil. Is that really going to lead to murder? Is that really practical? Is that really what we see today? Well, maybe more than we realize. You know, back a few years ago, Tim Tebow, when he was at the height of his very short football career, a relative, I guess you could call it a height, but it even wasn't that high, Kane was a st- or Kane. Tim Tebow was a starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos. And his jersey was selling off the shelves. He was a high draft pick. He won a playoff game even. So people couldn't get enough of him. And people knew that Tim Tebow was an outspoken Christian. People knew that he was very open about his faith, that he wanted to use the platform that God had given him to share his faith. But for some reason, people hated Tim Tebow. Either you loved him or you absolutely despised him. You wanted him to win the Super Bowl or you wanted him to break both of his legs in the upcoming game. It was one or the other. Tim Tebow was absolutely hated. Now, why would that be? Well, you know, there's one example in particular that is really just incredible. As I look back on it, as I read it this past week, there's one website that is well known for helping people who are married have affairs. And so if you want to sign up for this website, then it'll help you find someone to have an affair with. Well, the owner of this website looked at Tim Tebow and he decided that he could use some publicity here. So he made the offer that if any young woman could prove that Tim Tebow was not a virgin, they'd get a million dollars from the website. Any kind of proof whatsoever. If they could somehow prove that this faith that Tim Tebow had was all a fraud, that it was all a sham, that he was just an actor, that it wasn't genuine, that person would get a million dollars. What kind of hatred do you have to have to do that? What did Tim Tebow do to those people? Nothing. It's not like the owner of the website had some sort of axe to grind against Tim Tebow. It's not like they owed him money or something. But these people hated Tim Tebow. They wanted to see him fall. They wanted to see him fall from his pedestal, and they wanted to laugh as he went down. John says the world will hate you if you love the way you're called to love. The world may hate you if you strive to imitate your father the way he tells us to in the previous chapter. The world may hate us, but we keep on loving, and we keep on following, and we keep on obeying no matter what kind of consequences we may see. 
Hatred characterizes the world, and we shouldn't be surprised when it may come to us. But then with this example of Cain and Abel, John seems to basically equate hatred with murder. He says that if you hate your brothers and your sisters, then you're like Cain. You're a murderer. And that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Hatred and murder, they're not the same thing. Murder is way worse than hatred. You're not going to go to jail because you hate somebody, but you will go to jail if you murder somebody. They're totally different issues, not remotely on the same level. But really, when you think about it, at their root, they really aren't all that different. When you genuinely hate someone, when that hate just lives in you and it broods in you and it ferments and it just builds up and builds up and builds up, you get to the point where you probably think, you know, the world would be a better place if that person just wasn't here. If that person just fell off the face of the earth, we'd all be a lot happier. The only difference between that and murder is the execution. That's the only difference at the root. So we really shouldn't be surprised that John equates murder and hatred together. And again, this isn't just something that John makes up. This is something that he gets from Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says about anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus seems to indicate the same idea, that at the core, anger And bitterness and insults, all things that come as a result of hatred, they're the equivalent of murder. Because you are attacking someone created in God's image. And hatred and love simply cannot coexist. He says that those characterized by hatred don't know God. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, if you say you're a child of God, you can't just hate your brother and your sister. You're like Cain. You don't know God, if that's the case. You're still in death. You have not passed from death into eternal life, is what John seems to indicate. These two can't coexist. They don't work together. You can't have a little bit of one and some of the other. Either you love or you hate your brothers and your sisters, and there's no in-between. And if you hate, the question has to be asked. What's your relationship to God? That seems to be the point That John is making. The world is characterized by hate. The world may hate you if you're a follower of Jesus. Don't give in. Don't become like the world. Be loving. Show the kind of love that Jesus shows. Now, you know, this is scary sometimes when we hear this because we hear that the world is characterized by hatred that we can't hate and call ourselves children of God. We can't hate our brothers and our sisters. Hate is all around us. We can expect that we might experience hatred on our own. So where do we find love? Where do we look to find what love is if the world is characterized by hatred? Well, pick up in verse 16 of John, 1 John chapter 3. He's going to tell us, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That brings us to that second big idea, that the love that Jesus shows is the same kind of love that we're called to show. And there's no better place where you can see the love of Christ than by looking at the cross. You know, what's interesting about the cross, one of the many, many things that makes it so impactful and amazing and challenging, is just how unnatural the cross really is. You know, nature is only focused about self-preservation. Nature is about kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, survival of the fittest. And yet the cross, that's the exact opposite of self-preservation. The cross is self-sacrifice. It's unnatural. It's strange. It's countercultural. It's supernatural. That's what the cross is. You know, back a few weeks ago, Olivia and I have Netflix, and uh, we watched the movie Captain America. I would not recommend Captain America. I didn't like it. That's just me. I know there's some people who are probably upset about it, but I didn't like Captain America. But there was one good scene in Captain America. And this young guy, this frail, weak, just not a soldier type, finally gets into the military. He tried to get in over and over and over, and they rejected him over and over and over. He finally gets in. He's ready to defend his country. He takes great pride in the fact that he's now in the military. But he has to go to basic training. And in basic training, he can't keep up. He's weak. He's slow. He gets tired. He can't keep up with all the other soldiers. And one of the higher-ups is talking and saying, you know, I don't understand why we even have this guy here. Clearly, he can't be a soldier. He doesn't have the skills. He doesn't have the ability. He doesn't have the strength to do what needs to be done. But then, in the middle of a drill, a dead dud grenade lands in the middle of all these soldiers. And the sergeant yells, Grenade! All the other soldiers flee, and yet this scrawny, skinny, out-of-shape guy jumps on top of the grenade to try and limit the blast from killing other soldiers. Now, it was just a drill. You've probably heard that story. That's kind of an urban legend that has kind of grown over time of people that have jumped on top of grenades to try and save fellow comrades. And sure, it has happened, but the idea there is this. That's the exact opposite of self-preservation. It's the exact opposite of kill or be killed. It's the exact opposite of selfishness. And that's what we see on the cross. Instead of self-preservation, it's self-sacrifice. It's a broken body. It's shed blood for people who have nothing to give in return. That's what love is, according to John. If you want to see love, look at the cross. Look at the broken body. Look at the shed blood. Look at the sacrifice that was made for you, even though you have nothing to offer the person who made that sacrifice. That's what love is. But then John elaborates and he says, you know, this love that you see at the cross, this self-sacrifice, the love that you're supposed to have for one another, your brothers and your sisters, this love is going to be seen. And this love will be seen in how you live. He says that you can't just turn a blind eye to brothers and sisters who are in need. You can't just not even bat an eyelash when you know a brother or sister is in need, and yet you don't help them. That's not an option. That's not what love does. That's not what self-sacrifice does. That's what hatred does. And you know, we hear that about showing love with our deeds and how actions speak louder than words, and we think, you know, that's pretty tough. 
That's where the rubber hits the road. Because this means that I have to love the person who doesn't love me back. That means that I have to love the brother or the sister in Christ who never paid me back that money that they owed me. I have to love the brother or the sister in Christ who has incredibly different political views than I do. I have to love the brother or the sister in Christ who has nothing to offer me whatsoever. There's absolutely nothing in it for me when I love this person. Yet I continue loving them anyway. You know, we may never find ourselves in the situation that Jesus found himself in. Dying on a cross for God's people. We may never have to jump on a grenade to save our brothers and our sisters and our Christ. But we're called to be sacrificial. We're called to be loving. This is where faith is seen. This is where the rubber hits the road for John. It's where the rubber hits the road for James as well. If you remember back in our James series, you may have been reminded of 1 James 2, 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Love is seen in action. You know, it's seen in words too. But ultimately, actions speak louder than words. It's the idea that John is getting at. So show your love for your brothers and your sisters by doing it. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Love them. But then where do words come into play? Words do matter when it comes to love. It's not just about actions because words are important too. You know, there may be times when the most loving thing we can do for a brother or sister in Christ is say something, is speak a word into their life. You know, there are times when I think speaking can be even harder than doing. Saying something can be harder than doing something. For example, a lot of us would probably admit that if a brother or sister in Christ came to us and said, hey, I need a hundred bucks, a lot of us would probably say, well, you know what, all right, I'll let you borrow a hundred bucks and pay it back when you can, but if you can't, you know, it's not a big deal, but here you go. We'd cut a check, no problem. That doesn't really bother us too much. But then we find ourselves in a situation where we need to talk to our brother or sister in Christ about something sensitive, about something awkward, about something that may cause a fight, about something that may be tense, and we're worried about ruining the relationship or we're worried about putting ourselves in that situation. That can be harder than cutting a check. That can be harder than paying for groceries. But if we refuse to have tough conversations with brothers and sisters, if we refuse to bring things to their attention, even when we know that they don't want to acknowledge it, we're living by self-preservation. We're not living by self-sacrifice. We're living by not wanting to rock the boat. We're living by not wanting to cause problems. We're trying to just avoid that awkward situation, but that's not loving. That's self-preservation. It's not self-sacrifice. And love, there's no in-between. Either you love or you hate, according to John. It's that simple. You're no better than Cain. You're no better than a murderer if you refuse to love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And you know, when you do it, the world may hate you for it. But look at the cross. Look at the self-sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me, people who have nothing to give in return. The cross is where we find love. The cross is where we see love both in word 
and in truth, by actions and by words. That's the idea. Pick back up in verse 19, closing out our passage. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This love that we have for one another, this self-sacrificing love, this cross-shaped love, the kind of love where we would dive on a grenade for our brothers and our sisters, that's the kind of love that gives proof to our identity as God's children. As we talked about last week, it's not the kind of love where you love and then that earns you the right of being called God's child. It's not about loving that way you can meet the prerequisites and then God will choose to adopt you as his son or as his daughter. We love because we are already his sons and already his daughters. And we get that title not by anything we've done, but by his grace and his grace alone. But in the midst of that, when we realize that, we are freed up to love. We are freed up to serve like we never have before. But then John says, there may be moments when your hearts doubt. There may be moments where you have those insecurities. There may be moments where you have those struggles. You know, if you've been a Christian for long, you've probably dealt with that. Maybe you're wrestling with some sin in your life and you've been wrestling with it for a week or a month or six months or a year. And you step back and you say, you know, how can I be a child of God if I'm still wrestling with this? Why aren't I over this? Why haven't I gotten past this yet? Have I lost my salvation because I'm still dealing with this sin? Maybe you buy into the lies that Satan gives you. The lie that somehow you're not a child of God. Look at the stains in your life. Look at the stains in your past. Yeah, that small group leader or that preacher may have told you that you're a child of God now. You may have been dipped in some water, but that stain still exists. And you can't forget it. And there's nothing that you can do to make it go away. And there's nothing that God can do to make it go away. And then Satan says, well, look at the stain that you're probably developing right now. That sin that you're dealing with at this very moment. Think about the stains that will probably be put on later in your life because you know you're going to sin again. You know you're going to struggle again. How could God possibly love you? Those doubts will come. Those insecurities will come. Those lies from Satan will come. But John says that we can rest assured. We can rest assured in the love of God. We can can rest assured that we love our brothers and our sisters. We can rest assured, not because of anything we do, but rather because of God himself. Because John says that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than the stains. He's greater than the struggles. He's greater than the sins. He's greater than the lies. He's greater than the insecurities. He's greater than all of those things. And because of that, you can sleep well at night, knowing that if you're a child of God, if you're a son of God, if you're a daughter of God, God is greater than anything that you're dealing with. God is greater than the lies. He's greater than the doubts. So rest secure. 
Rest confident. Not in yourself, but rest confident in the cross. Rest confident that the cross has covered you. Rest confident in the love that God has for you. And the love that you have for your brothers and your sisters. And then finally, John says, look at the spirit that you've been given. The spirit that abides in you. You know, we talk about the Holy Spirit a lot in churches and in small groups and on different conferences and all this stuff. But it's kind of one of those topics that is difficult to understand. And we don't really know what that really means and what that looks like sometimes. Well, Paul addresses that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul indicates that, you know, as a child of God, you should be a little bit more loving, a little bit more patient, a little bit more kind, a little bit more generous. Absolutely, you should be growing in those things, and those things should be developing. But at the same time, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not an instant change. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes ups and downs. Sometimes it's kind of like making a diamond out of coal. It takes a lot of heat and a lot of pressure. But it will happen. That's what the Spirit is there for. So there may be times when you're not perfectly kind. There may be times when you're not perfectly generous. There may be times when you're still impatient. But rest assured in God. Rest assured in the Spirit that lives inside of you. That He's working on you. He's transforming you. He's changing you. And it may not be obvious right now. It may not be obvious tomorrow. When you wake up tomorrow, it may look like you've taken one step forward and two steps back. But rest assured, the Spirit is working. The Spirit is changing. The Spirit is pruning. Just give it time. Just give it patience. Show love for one another. Trust in the love that God has for you. You know, back to that whole idea of love. If you've been in a serious relationship for long, if you've been in a marriage for long, you know that love is not always what it's cracked up to be. Love can be painful. Love can be tedious. It can be a challenge. Kim's nudging. It should be the other way around. Love can be tedious, love can be painful, love can be difficult. But these things that make love ugly sometimes in our minds, those are actually the things that make love beautiful. Those are actually the things that make love worth it. Paul knows that love is hard. Paul went through hardships. He went through way deeper hardships than many of us will ever have to imagine. But he said that the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, is love. You know, the things that make love ugly, the self-sacrifice, the pain, the getting nothing in return for it, those are actually things that make love beautiful. And there's no better place to find love than to look at the cross, to look at the broken body and look at shed blood. So if you're not a follower of Christ, my challenge to you is to look to the cross. Find love there because it's waiting for you. Maybe you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You're looking for love in relationships. You're looking for love and success. You're looking for fulfillment and all these things. And you're not going to find it because people will let you down. People are imperfect. 
But God isn't. Jesus died for you, the perfect sacrifice. All those other sources of love, they'll fade. They'll prove to be imperfect. But the cross won't. And you know, as beautifully as it is to see love at the cross, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, the second probably most beautiful place to see love is in the church. It's in the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ, when we're loving one another, it's people who have nothing else in common loving each other because the only thing they need in common is Jesus. That's a beautiful picture of love. So if you're already a follower of Christ, I encourage you, love your brothers and your sisters. Again, that may not entail a cross. It may not entail a grenade. You may not have to do any of those things. But you can buy a meal. You can send a card. You can hold a door open. You can pay for some groceries. Babysit some kids. Laugh with them. Cry with them. Pray with them. Have their back when they're falsely accused, but then be willing to hold them accountable when maybe they actually are guilty. It may not require a cross. It may not require a grenade. And these things may sound trivial, buying meals and sending cards, but really they aren't. In a world that's characterized by hatred, the love of Christ that we show for one another can absolutely be revolutionary. By this, people will know that we're his disciples if we love one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for your patience and your mercy and your grace. God, thank you that we can have confidence in you. We can rest assured in you, knowing that even when we're faithless, you're faithful. Even when we may be characterized by hatred more than love, your love for us doesn't change. God, I pray that we'll learn to love one another, even when it comes difficult, even when it's not easy, even when it's not fun, even when it is sacrificial. God, I pray that we'll see the beauty in that. I pray that we'll give you glory for the love that you've shown us. I pray that we'll give you glory for the spirit that you've given us to work on us and transform us and and help us become more like you. Teach us to love one another through your spirit. God, we love you. We honor you. We praise you, we glorify you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.